Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Sam Shaheen, a senior editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, Blister's managing editor, Luke Kappa, and I are talking to Patagonia's senior material developer, Pasha Whitmeyer. We cover a lot in this podcast, including technical fabric design, development, testing, and working with Gore-Tex fabrics. Luke and I are self-professed outerwear nerds. Combine that with Pasha's knowledge and passion for technical fabrics, and you guessed it, this conversation turns into a full-on fabric and outerwear geek out session. But Pasha also sheds light on a lot of interesting and genuinely useful information that we think everyone will enjoy, even if you're not a nerd like us. So, without further ado... Let's get to our conversation with Pasha. Hi, everyone. I'm Sam Shaheen, and I am talking with our managing editor, Luke Kappa. How are you doing today, Luke? I'm doing well. We just got almost a foot of snow in Crested Butte. <laughs> Ooh, man. Nice, uh, nice May Day present for you there, eh? Yeah. Uh, we have today on the podcast a, re- a guest we're really excited about, um, Pasha Whitmire is a senior material developer at Patagonia, and we're going to get uh, get a chance to geek out a whole bunch on materials. How are you doing today, Pasha? Hey, good. How are you guys? Good. Excellent. So, um, so yeah, let's just let's dive right in, Pasha. Uh, could you start by telling us a bit about your background and describing uh, your current role at Patagonia? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I actually studied textile engineering in school at North Carolina State University. And from there, I started getting into the outdoor apparel industry. I've always been really interested in the outdoors and nature and surfing and hiking and all those sorts of things. So it was a really neat way to take some of the education that I had in school and apply it towards things that I was really interested in doing in my personal uh, free time. So um, I've been at Patagonia for almost six years now. and actually first started out working in the testing lab doing all kinds of physical property testing on fabrics but quickly moved over to work on more of the material development side that I really enjoy and I work directly with fabric mills uh, to design and create new fabric concepts for um, a lot of our new innovations and ideas that we're coming up with for our future product of Patagonia. So then are there specific product lines you work with or specific fabric types that you focus on, or is your focus rather, rather broad? Yeah, my uh, specialty and what I focus on is waterproof breathable. So that's any kind of fabric that's been laminated or coated um, and typically involves some sort of membrane to keep water out and allow that textile to breathe at the same time. Um, And I've worked on that for a number of years, and and more recently, I've actually been getting more involved with um, trying to uh, develop more recycled materials that can actually be used across all kinds of fabric categories. But um, my main job responsibility and focus is on waterproof fabrics. So just just so you know, Luke and I both kind of have background in apparel design and materials and things like that. And so we we both have a bunch of questions, and we're going to kind of, I think throw questions back and forth. Uh, Luke, do you, do you want to start off with a question then? Yeah, well, I guess to start, you mentioned you started off in product testing and materials testing. And I'm curious, 
Because as far as I've seen, not not every company out there who's doing proprietary materials like Patagonia has their own in-house testing. It seems like a lot are letting a fabric mill do that on their own or just purchasing a fabric from a third party. So what what sort of tests are you at Patagonia running on your proprietary fabrics? Are you doing, I take it like abrasion testing and stuff like that for durability, but are you also testing like the waterproof and breathability ratings yourself? Yeah, we are. Um, it's kind of, it depends on the kind of fabric uh, that we are testing, but uh, that is something that I think is unique about Patagonia. Um, I've worked for other brands, and uh, I think we do have one of the most extensive labs in the industry, and we do test everything in-house at a development stage. So before we're uh, commercializing anything, we will have fully vetted it and really understand the performance ourselves in our own lab um, here in Ventura. And We've really, um, we really pride ourselves with knowing exactly how that textile performs. Um, we actually have several folks here uh, that that is their main job is kind of developing these standards and really understanding how these fabrics perform. And that's kind of where I started when I first um, began working at Patagonia. Um, and so for like the waterproof fabrics, for example, we do put those fabrics through a lot of rigorous tests um, that we might not put, uh, let's say, like a base layer knit through. Um, one being um, some durability tests uh, to make sure that the lamination and the coatings on the waterproof fabrics where we're bonding those those membrane layers um, to the textile, that, those, that uh, those adhesion points are really holding up over time. So we have this test called the 24-hour killer wash or just the killer wash. And what that is is just a continuous uh, central agitation wash without any soap or detergent. And um, it's, it's basically an industrial laundry machine. And we continuously, we've taken out the timer and everything like that of your typical washing machine so that we can just run it straight on the, the agitation mode. And uh, we'll run that straight for 24 hours. And we've seen that doing that really destroys <laughs> garments and fabrics quite easily. And, uh, but some still survive. And it's a really good um, representation of what happens in the field and with our customers, if a, a customer has a jacket or a waterproof garment or a bonded garment and they've had it for many years and maybe they've washed it a few times, maybe they haven't, but they just really have used and abused that garment. And, and, and maybe you guys have experience with this or some customers have experience of having a glued or bonded garment or a waterproof garment that falls apart, delaminates over time, that the killer wash really goes after that kind of failure mode. And and we put all of our fabrics through that test to ensure that anything that we're gluing or bonding or uh, laminating or coating, that those products really are going to last a super long time. And, um, and the killer wash really represents that. So and we even run other tests after the killer wash as well, like waterproofness and uh, lamination strength and uh, even just checking for other things like appearance and stuff. So. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, 
yeah, having a waterproof jacket delaminate on you is one of the less happy things you can experience, especially if you're out <laughs> in the rain. Um, so yeah, I think that's super cool. And yeah, like you said, I don't think it's that common for a company to have a testing facility that's that rigorous and that can actually kind of figure out those potential issues before they happen to the customer. Um, so I think that's super cool. Yeah, and it really gives us a chance to really dive deep into the development and iterative process of working with a fabric mill to perfect a certain fabric that we're going after. So like, let's say that I, I was developing a new material and we did put it through the killer wash, let's say, and it wasn't quite hitting the standards that we expect for the fabric to hit. Then I could go back to the mill and because we tested it in-house, we might be able to take some photos and really understand with like the experience where we've tested many different fabrics over time with the killer wash that we might know what kind of tweaks and things like that we can make with the fabric mill to get the kind of quality and performance that we're really looking for. So that's kind of another advantage of having these tests in-house is we can really analyze and see what those failure modes are firsthand and work with the fabric mill to make those improvements to build the best product we can. I definitely have some some, some testing follow-up questions I have having thought a lot personally about breathability testing specifically and sort of the ways that, 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 that standard tests are and aren't really representative of field use. I'm just curious, do you, do you guys use one of, one of the few standardized tests for breathability or do you guys have a proprietary system you use to characterize breathability of your waterproof breathables? Um, we do, we use an industry standard. Um, I think most of the industry is using a JIS standard for breathability, and we're using an ASTM standard, the E96 methods. The upright cup test, right? Yeah, we'll use the upright yeah. and the inverted cup test. Okay. But the difference, it's, it's really interesting because, like, everyone in the industry, there's a couple different standards. There's even different uh, conditions in your lab that you can be testing to within those standards. So... When folks are quoting different um, numbers uh, for their materials, like you might hear like 20K, 20K or 20K, 10K breathability, like those sort of numbers are usually referring to the A1B1 test method uh, within the GIS standard. But um, a lot of times it's, pr it's pretty misleading because A, like most consumers don't know what those standards really are and B, um, each company might be using slightly different standards or different environmental conditions, which change your numbers. So Patagonia typically doesn't actually disclose what exactly our breathability numbers are on our fabrics. Uh, we are testing for them and we do have our own methods and standards around that, but we don't typically share it because we don't want to confuse our customer. And it's, it becomes meaningless when you're comparing across different standards. So. Sure. Have, have, have you guys looked at all into um, the Hohenstein or the RET sweating hot plate method? We have. And it's really interesting to look into that and understand, especially when you're talking about butterproof breathables uh, specifically. I mean, even the Hohenstein Institute did this study where um, they basically said that like, with, whenever you're within this certain RET range, that the customer or like the end user may not really be able to distinguish much of a difference. And what's funny is that most waterproof breathables really fall within one category of RET breathability. And so 
although when we're making like when we're developing and we're trying to build the best product, we do make comparisons across different uh, membrane types and trying to make the fabric as breathable as possible. It is interesting to note that there have been studies out there that show that like generally if you're building a waterproof breathable and you have some sort of plastic membrane on there to keep it waterproof, it's going to fall within a general RAT range that most consumers wouldn't really be able to pick up on the differences. And right now we don't have um, the capabilities to test for RET in-house. So that's something that on occasion we'll send out a few different types of membranes to kind of compare what those RET values are. Um, but the kind of equipment that is used to do that is a sweating hot plate. And we don't have one of those. We just have a hot plate right now, which is good for testing clow and uh, different insulation packages. Um, but that is something that we are looking into for the next year, actually, is getting a sweating hot plate so we can run those tests in-house. Interesting. So, Because, I mean, the more and more that I've, like, dug into it and thought about it and experimented around with, with it, it seems like it seems like there really isn't one number that's really going to encapsulate the comfort of a garment or a, or of a, a fabric. You know, like, a lot of times we like to think that breathability is this, like, this, this number that, that, that says how dry we're going to be or whatever it might be. But especially now with the, the, the up and coming air permeable membranes, there's a lot of different things I think that need to be considered, especially like, like what's, what's your pressure drop across the membrane and CLO value, CLO value becomes really important because, you know, if there's a huge amount of air permeability, then all of a sudden you lose a lot of insulative value. And then you, you know, it's it has like there's a different level of comfort there so um do you are these things that you guys think about when 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 characterizing fabrics yeah for sure and it's things that we've even like done studies with our field testers on as well because i mean we can like go about developing all these different fabrics and have all these different numbers but we also want to kind of understand with our athletes and our ambassadors like who are pretty attuned they're getting out there every day with these different shells like how, how are they perceiving this too? And so uh, a couple of years ago, we put um, a whole suite of fabrics out that were built pretty similarly, but each one had a different kind of membrane for waterproofness and even different waterproofness levels. What was really interesting is that the, like, even though like some of the membranes were fully shut down, there's no air permeability, but then some had air permeability that the, the users were really gravitating more towards the fabric packages that, were more comfortable that offered like more maybe like the one textile had a little bit more stretch or softness to it than another and they were picking up on that more so and thinking that that was offering more breathability and more comfort than the other textiles even though everything was pretty much similarly constructed but the membranes kind of created uh like if i had like a really beefy coating for example it's going to be pretty rigid not very stretchy and then over here, if I had like a really lightweight, like seven GSM uh, or grams per meter squared uh, membrane uh, that that they could barely like it's so soft and supple and they they would think that that's super breathable and uh, really comfortable. And it was interesting to learn that what we basically took away from that study was that textile design and really going into the details of how the backer fabric feels against the skin or how the whole textile package is put together can play a huge role in breathability, but that's not something that the, the numbers are really showing. So that's what we really focus on too at Patagonia is really trying to 
hone in on those those fabric constructions that are really going to have a good breathability perception with the customer as well. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually. The perception and reality don't necessarily line up. And apparently they aren't that important if, 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 if most of our membranes are falling in this really sort of narrow breathability range that is essentially imperceptible anyway. Other factors play into it as well with the breathability, you know, because like if, if your face fabric is starting to wet out and all of a sudden like their, the entire face fabric is just completely saturated in water, that will make breathability really difficult for the membrane. The membrane is going to really struggle, like the thermodynamics of really pushing the water through, like your water vapor on your body through the membrane when it's 100% humidity on the outside, like that can get really difficult too. So just little factors like that play huge roles into breathability, even though in the lab with those perfect settings and having a really dry face, there's no water on the face fabric. Um, you know, you can make it seem like it's really breathable, but real world situations, there's a lot going on there. So is there any particular material or materials that you are proudest of that you worked on developing that eventually went to market? Um, yeah. So I think that for me being a waterproof, breathable material developer at Patagonia, the most interesting um, and critical product that I work on is probably the waiter fabrics. And it's been a long time coming because this is a kind of product that really takes years to perfect. And pretty much the entire time that I've been working here at Patagonia, I've been iteratively developing internally in the background new waiter fabrics for a new line that we're going to be launching in spring 20. So that's something I'm really excited about is like a complete reset of those textiles where we've really thought long and hard for many years, uh, like tons of robust testing and field testing as well. And then really having the freedom, design freedom to kind of go after building what we think is honestly the best product we can possibly think of and really taking some of those constraints off the table, like costs or um, any other kind of hang up to focus on like, how can we really truly build the best thing here? That's going to be the best performance. And, and I think that's, why working on wager fabrics has been the most enjoyable and interesting is because I think that at this brand, we really, um, those products, we really feel like we can have that kind of freedom to, to go after the best. And especially because of it's such, such critical nature of having to be submerged underwater as a, like as, as compared to a rain jacket, um, or a snow shell. I mean, of course it's critical, but uh, it's, there's nothing like the actual pressure of being underwater with a garment uh, that's waterproof readable compared to uh, a rain jacket. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting product to work on. Yeah, I bet. Um, one random question on this topic. I've noticed that I've seen a few waders out there where the brand talks about it using a four-layer laminate and in snow sports and climbing and most like waterproof shells, we only see like two and a half, two-layer and three-layer jackets. Uh, could you explain that a bit? So like with your typical rainwear situation, you'd have kind of what you call the face fabric, which is the outside shell material. It's typically like a woven. And then you would laminate or bond a membrane to that in the middle and then the third layer would be next to skin or next to your base layer some sort of knit or maybe even a woven 
uh, that would kind of complete that sandwich. So like textile, textile with the membrane in between. So that's a three layer. And that's what's used most of the time in any kind of like any kind of rain wear or snow shell or anything like that. But with waders, because of the critical nature of it, you might see a lot of times people are talking about four layer or even five layer constructions. And the case of Patagonia, we go after the four layer construction. And what is going on there is that we have the shell textile and then we've coated on one membrane onto the backside of that textile to really impregnate the membrane into the textile so there's as little wet pickup as possible. And then on top of that is extra insurance for waterproofness. We've actually laminated another membrane, a non-porous membrane, to the backside of that microporous coating that we put on there. And then finally, we put on a fourth layer, which is the backing material that would go next to your skin or um, against your base layer. So that's what the four-layer construction is. And Patagonia's really stuck to the four-layer over the years. And we've looked at doing five layers before, which kind of is, is you're just throwing in another textile really in the middle of the sandwich. But what we've seen is that by putting five layers of material together, that means like you are actually going through the lamination machine five times and that's introducing room for a lot of error. I mean, each time you go through, there's the potential that that bonding layer is not going to be produced correctly. And so we feel like the four layer is a real nice sweet spot of getting the performance we need, being the right production efficiency and offering a much more supple hand for like the final garment. Uh, sometimes these five layer constructions are even beefier fabrics, like using it for a really long time, you can end up getting little pinch points where the fabric starts to, it's so rigid, it starts to fold onto itself, kind of like um, polyethylene or polypropylene uh, milk carton. And if you fold that material enough, eventually you're going to create some sort of pinhole or, there's going to be a spot at which that material is going to start failing on the fold point. So that's why we think the four layer construction also has an advantage is because of its more supple nature. It can move with the punches rather than um, being susceptible to punctures um, over time. I mean, there's, there's enough engineering problems with the three layer construction, you know, having uh, whatever membrane material you have bonded to, you know, your, your nylon woven face and uh uh, you know, a trico or a knit back or whatever it might be, but to, to, to add yet another, like several interfaces into the mix, that's got to complicate, that's got to complicate the engineering side of things a, a lot. I imagine. Definitely. When you, when you look at developing a new product is, uh, is the concept typically developed first and then, and then a material is specced to match, or is it sort of the other way around where an interesting material gets developed and then you design a product around that material? Um, yeah, I think it actually goes both ways. Sometimes like we'll be searching the market and we'll find a material that's really compelling, uh, that kind of sparks a new idea. And then we'll go after that fabric as it existed already, uh, kind of tweaking, developing it for what Patagonia's needs might be or our ideas might be. But then other times we are kind of ground up developing from, from just a concept or just an idea. And we will go to a mill and, and say, Hey, you guys, like we haven't seen anything like this on the market. This is the concept we're going for. Uh, can you do this with us? So I think it kind of goes both ways. So one of the, 
Patagonia fabrics that we're really stoked on recently is um, the 3L fabric you guys are using on the new Snow Drifter kit. Can you talk a bit about this this fabric specifically and about the development process and ideas behind that? One thing we were going after uh, just from a material standpoint was uh, trying to design more around circularity. And what that it's a big deal within the material development of waterproof breathables because typically we're mixing lots of different fiber types, like maybe have a nylon face, a polyurethane membrane, and then a nylon backing or a polyester backing. But with this piece, we, which we kind of like started out with the cloud ridge before, um, was trying to go after a 100% polyester textile, like through and through, like the membrane, the backing, the face, everything's polyester with the idea that one day if this garment uh, eventually could not be repaired any longer, that we could take this garment back and then put it into a chemical recycling process to regenerate it back into brand new polyester. So that was kind of where the concept started. We found some really great looking textiles that kind of were fitting the bill around this kind of more lightweight, supple, comfortable package like you might notice that the snow drifter has this nice jersey knit backer uh which we've seen uh with our field testers has been like really comfortable and warm and really gives that fabric a much softer hand feel it's when you're wearing some of these other shells out there you might be swishing through and swishing around like it's crunchy and swishing and I think that's something with the snow drifter that we kind of were able to get away from a little bit, but still like have that protection and protective feel to it. And the face fabric, we were able to use a chemically recycled polyester from um, Tejin, which is really interesting because they're using post-consumer waste that otherwise really wouldn't have had a home or would have had to really been uh, going to the landfill. Most of the recycled polyester out there is made from plastic bottles that's been like meticulously sorted through and mechanically recycled. They can only use the white or clear PET plastic, and then uh, they chip that up and clean it and uh, melt it down to create new recycled polyester. But the cool thing about the snow drifter is it's using uh, a recycled polyester that was actually chemically broken down from waste that has colorant in it, um, could be old garments or uh, any kind of polyester waste that uh, didn't really have a home. So that's another neat aspect of it um and that's the reason why it's only 70 percent uh is because like the 30 percent that's virgin content is actually coming from the ethylene glycol which um we weren't able to get in recycled content because of the environmental uh impacts of taking that from that waste so we kept it as clean as possible um, and then the polyester membrane as well uh kind of completes the picture of like that 100 percent polyester recycled material with face fabric and then recyclable uh, at the end of the life. So we're pretty excited about this textile. Yeah, that is so freaking cool. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like from, from my perspective, I, I, I didn't, I don't really know many of the technical details on it. I've just used it a bunch and I'm really impressed by the hand and just how soft and comfortable it is um, while still maintaining a pretty high performance envelope but um but hearing the whole circularity story that's that's absolutely fascinating that's really cool since we were talking about waiters earlier and 
I mean, Patagonia uses waterproof breathables across the entire line. Have there been any instances where, say, like you found it or you developed this really cool waiter fabric and you're, you think to yourself, oh, this has a lot of potential as like a snow sports fabric or a climbing fabric or vice versa? How much crossover do you see across the different lines while you're developing new fabrics? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, sometimes we do see some crossover or there might be some sort of inspiration or piece of a textile that we will get and we will apply that over to another textile, but maybe change some of the finishing details or, you know, maybe with like a a good example would be like our dirt roamer jacket and mountain bike. That's a really neat soft shell piece where we don't have any membrane in between the face and the backing. So it's really breathable, but actually that face textile is fantastic for laminating to waterproof textiles and, um, and making other kinds of different packages out of it. So we're, we've been taking that same face and bonding it to other membranes and uh, trying out different backings and all kinds of stuff to really take full advantage of that great recycled lightweight face that we made there. So there is some crossover, but I, I would say like Patagonia is pretty particular and we're really uh, pretty purposeful about like how a fabric is used in each style. So. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I remember uh, handling that dirt rumor jacket at Outdoor Retailer and was kind of blown away by how nice the fabric feels. And I think Sam and I were both like, well, we don't mountain bike that much, but this would make a sweet ski touring jacket. It's <laughs> like, I want one. I yeah. Want one. <laughs> yeah. So that, like, you'll see that textile being used even more uh, over the years as we continue to develop um, new textiles. Sweet. Looking forward to it. So you guys work a lot with uh, with uh, with branded fabrics like Gore and Polar Tech. Can you describe some of the pros and cons of working with brands like that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I had a lot of experience working with Gore, uh, and it's been a really interesting relationship over the years. I mean, I think like when I first started at Patagonia, we we didn't really have a lot of leeway as far as the kind of custom development that we would be doing. I mean, Gore is a big company. They've got, uh, they've got their own material developers over there, like people like me that are developing their own line of textiles. And so for, for me to kind of go in and develop a custom textile with them, it's kind of like duplicative, I guess, since they already have their own team. But over the years, I think that they've really been, um, becoming a bigger and bigger partner with us and exploring that kind of collaborative development process. A good example of that is when we kind of relaunched our pro shell in like the most recent couple of years. And um, that was where we introduced recycled nylon uh, as a face fabric there. So that was, that was a neat one where we were able to kind of influence Gore and work together to get those recycled textiles into the highest performing category of theirs. And since then, it's been kind of like we continue to develop more and more with them and even more custom as well. So uh, in fall 19, our entire uh, waterproof line incorporates some sort of recycled content, uh, especially in the face fabric, across our entire waterproof line. And then um, we're continuing in the the future of working even more closely with Gore on uh, new 
developments that uh, we're really excited about that should be moving the uh, meter environmentally too. So it continues to be a, a great relationship and I'm excited about like where the future is going. I mean, Gore, Gore is kind of, or at least has been notorious for being very um, controlling, I guess, of their fabrics with the, with, with sort of the like advent of the Infinium line and doing this whole, like not 100% waterproof kind of membrane stuff. Have, have you guys seen that sort of relax a little bit? Patagonia hasn't played too much in that space because I think we have such a strong material development team here that a lot of those non-waterproof textiles were kind of handling more on our side and those developments. I think the things that we really enjoy most about Gore is like their high level of quality and their extremely durable waterproof fabric. So those, those are the main reasons we go to Gore. And also they have like a big... Uh, impact on the entire industry as far as being very connected to many different kinds of brands. So when Patagonia and Gore work together on a new recycled line, like that's not just going to be for Patagonia. It's going to be for all the different brands that Gore works with. So we're really, we're not working in, Patagonia is not trying to just work in our little bubble and just make environmentally friendly materials for only the products we make. We're trying to really affect the entire industry. So that's a big reason why we work with folks like PolarTech or Gore is to try and get these bigger companies on board with more environmental initiatives. Um, you know, I can't really speak too much about uh, what Gore is doing on the Infinium, Infinium side just because we haven't uh, played too much in that space. But Gore is, Gore is definitely leading, or not maybe leading, but has one of the more prominent fabrics in this kind of membrane out space, their, their shake dry fabric. Have you guys, I imagine you guys have been looking into, in, into these fabrics. Do you, do you see those getting incorporated in, in, into Patagonia lines sometime soon? Um, you know, we've, we've looked at those textiles for sure. And we've done some field testing. I think like given where the Patagonia brand sits in the marketplace and our stance on um, long-term durability and quality, uh, we just decided not to kind of go into that space. I feel like a lot of Patagonia's products are pretty versatile. Um, you know, you can you can wear your jacket going up some huge 14 plus mountain or like go to the bar in it. And I think like that's the trick with a lot of Patagonia products. And I, we felt like that that shell out technology was pretty specific and specialized. And we saw a lot of brands in the market kind of already doing it and doing a good job of it. So we didn't want to be too duplicative in our, um, if like just coming out there with another jacket that a lot of brands were already ha like already had for the consumer. So that's, that's something that we chose not to kind of go after exactly. So on our end, um, our job is kind of to, well, we review products and try and tell people about like how they perform and, over our time at Blister, we've kind of noticed there's a lot of confusion or misunderstanding surrounding waterproof breathable fabrics. So as someone who develops them, what do you think the like key things that most people don't understand or misunderstand about waterproof breathables are? And is there anything that you'd want to tell the general public to kind of just like help them get the most out of their garments and kind of have a better idea of how they work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really kind of breaking it down to 
how the fabrics are put together and what makes them waterproof and what makes them water repellent and understanding the different pieces around that. I mean, first, most waterproof breathables on the market have some sort of shell face fabric on the outside, with the exception of what you guys just mentioned with the shell out or even uh, Columbia's Altry. So where they actually have the membrane on the outside. But for the most part, everyone has a textile on the outside. And that fabric is typically treated with a DWR, a durable water repellent finish. And that is kind of like your first line of defense against the rain or any kind of inclement weather is that that finishes around repelling water and even repelling some oils and dirt. So that's kind of your first line of defense. And then if your fabric starts to wet out where like you're no longer seeing that active beading, those, those balls of water just dripping right off of your fabric, then, uh, then you've got your actual waterproof membrane, uh, for those really intense storm days or heavy rainfall. Um, that's really what's keeping you dry and preventing water from moving through to you. So I think, that's something that I don't know if all consumers really understand is that differentiation between like that actual membrane that keeps you dry and waterproof. That's typically behind the face textile that you may not see all the time. And then there is the DWR on the face fabric that really is responsible for um, that kind of active beading phenomena that happens on a lot of rainwear. So those are two different technologies and, um, it's really interesting if you dive into DWR and uh, even some of the chemistries that are used in the membranes where we're really dependent on fluorine. And you might see in the market, there's some brands starting to talk about um, moving away from fluorine or PFD-free chemistries for DWR. And that's a really interesting hot topic um, just because of the concern of the manufacturing of fluorinated DWRs and how that impacts the environment. So Patagonia is super concerned about this and we're uh, working really hard to try and find a better solution. But um, it is interesting to note that like fluorinated chemistries are the best uh, at repelling water and oils on the periodic table. There isn't uh, a better alternative. Um, so really it's about trying to figure out how can we get the best performance we possibly can with those DWRs, um, but at the same time, not be causing uh, any kind of environmental concern or damage. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, we've seen a lot of development in the membrane category over the past few years, but in my eyes, it seems like DWRs are kind of like the next big area for potential improvement because as far as I know, like before people started switching to PFC free DWRs, everyone was kind of using a similar DWR across the industry for a while. Yeah. 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 I'll be, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what companies can come up with. And yeah, like you said, balancing that line of performance and sustainability seems to be very tricky. The, the decisions become pretty easy on products that are intended for less critical applications, but the most interesting and where like the where the research really has to happen is for like those really high end tip of the spear kind of products that we're designing for uh, athletes to be going out on 
many day missions of mountaineering and, and where if they get too cold or if they get, they're getting too wet, I mean, their lives are on the line. So that's the kind of stuff that we're really preoccupied in trying to find the, the solution for is those sorts of products. I mean, I think we're, we're getting to the point where we we're at least comfortable with like the risk level for uh, the general consumer on like whether it's general ski and snowwear or it's some types of rainwear or even just like mid layers and board shorts and things like that where it's just less critical. But the conversation gets really interesting when you start talking to some of these athletes and mountaineers that can just tell you about many experiences that they've had where they're just like near death experiences where their gear was not operating the way it needed to and uh, where they really depend on a lot of these high-end performance characteristics. So that's the kind of work that um, I'm really focused on is like trying to to find a solution for those kind of uh, applications. Yeah. And kind of, kind of going on, you know, the, the other side, one thing that I think about a lot when it comes to DWRs and, and sustainability specifically is we, we get tons of gear in here at Blister that's like casual stuff that has dwrs on it um you know like like maybe it's a it's a pair of like climbing pants say that's you know like soft shell knit or whatever it might be and you know you use you use the pant you know for a couple weeks or a couple months or whatever and all of a sudden the dwr is totally shot because this pant gets beat up so much you know and 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 it's a pant that i never really would take out in the rain anyway and it seems kind of like a waste that there's a DWR on something like that. Is I mean, how 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 are you guys thinking about DWRs on more casual on more casual pieces? Yeah, I think we are sitting down and really asking ourselves those critical questions, like, do we really need DWR on this? And I think sometimes the answer is yes, and it may not be for like rainwear reasons, like as far as uh, repelling actual rain, but it might be more around moisture management and quick drying and things like that that. Um, in some situations, it's kind of critical that you have something that can dry overnight or dry in just a couple hours. But then other situations, yeah, we're, we're taking it off. So I think it just really depends on the product or we're finding like other solutions where we, we can use a non-fluorinated DWR on something and feel comfortable about the environmentalism of that product. And, um, and another interesting thing that we've been learning too lately uh, that I think I'd really like to to mention to the general consumer is like uh, how to take care of your clothes. I think we get a lot of returns with Patagonia and I think across the industry, we've done studies with our consumers and we realized that a lot of people are actually returning their jackets before it's really hit the end of its life. Uh, I think someone might see that, Oh, the performance of my jacket, it's, it's really not beating up the way it used to. It's wetting out. It's no longer waterproof, quote unquote. And so they come back to us and we have a great uh, warranty and return policy. So people come back and return their jackets and stuff. And but another thing that we've been trying to encourage is like proper care. And what you really would be surprised to learn is that your jacket will perform better if you wash it on a regular basis. Not too regular, but just whenever it starts to really become dirty or you notice a lack of performance, actually wash your jacket uh, and dry it properly it really helps to reset that water repellent finish because it is a very durable water repellent finish. And 
we do a lot of testing to make sure that that water repellent finish isn't just coming off easily or just comes off right in the wash. And so when most people I talk to, they say like, oh, I never washed my waterproof jacket or, oh, I've washed it like one time. But once you start noticing the performance dropping, I really encourage people to really look up the proper care instructions and get that thing in the wash. And you might be surprised at the kind of bounce back of performance that you'll see both for the actual DWR on the face textile, but even like the things like breathability and uh, stuff like that. So, Well, it's, 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 it's good to hear you say that. Actually, Luke and I wrote a water breathable care article about two months ago or so. Um, we'll link that here in the podcast notes for, for, for listeners. But for any of you who didn't believe us when we said it, <laughs> believe it when Pasha says it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wash, wash your gear. It helps. I, Pasha, I, back when we, Sam and I were discussing this article, we had been talking about it for a while and kind of what finally got us to commit to it was one of my cousins. Um, he had a Patagonia down sweater that I think was four years old. Um, and he came up to me and asked, he's like, man, like, I love this thing at first, but now it's like, it doesn't beat any water. It's super dirty. It's not as warm. I was like, well, have you washed it? And he was like, no. And looked at me very perplexed. And yeah, just an example. He went after that conversation, he washed it. And he was like, oh my gosh, it's so much better. It's so much warmer. It beads water. So yeah, please people wash your stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've even taken just like, since I've been here for a few years, like Sometimes we'll have these little sales of uh, returned jackets and things like that. And one of the first jackets I got when I started working at Patagonia was like a really old three-layer Gore-Tex Patagonia jacket for snow. And uh, and I, I went in the lab and I tested the water repellency of it before doing anything to it. And because I knew it was used and of course, like it wet out, it was it, it had a pretty poor rating. And then uh, I put it through our wash and dryer and, and then I retested the spray rating on it. And it was like, it was, it was beautifully beating. Like it was, it was like brand new practically. So yeah, I can't stress that enough that even like, even if you were in like a thrift shop and you saw some old waterproof jacket, like you should definitely put that. It still has life in it. If it's not completely ripped to shreds. When, when you sort of look into your crystal ball, in the next, you know, five, 10, or even like 30 years, what sorts of um, advancements do you see coming on the horizon or what sorts of new or emerging technologies are you most excited about when it comes to textiles and materials? I think I get most excited about the environmental aspects that a lot of the products that we work on. I mean, I, of course, uh, I'm pretty biased. I mean, I'm working in Patagonia and everything, but um I think those are the kinds of things that get me that gets me most excited is really solving for these big uh, world problems that we have, whether it's like the ocean plastics pollution issue um, or uh, even just like global warming and CO2 emissions and stuff like that. So they're trying to solve for some of those problems within like our world and the uh, apparel industry, which is like pretty polluting and, um, there, I think there's a lot of folks that are doing a lot of incredible work out there trying to build product and design product that um, have both the beginning of life and end of life in mind, um, whether it's around circularity or creating more high value waste streams. So if like something is 
like, you know, if we have this issue of like, we have no idea where to put all this trash, like, well, can we make more long lasting products out of that trash? So trying to create demand for that kind of stuff. And there's companies out there that are starting up new pilot plants for recycling, uh, chemical recycling, taking dirtier trash or trash that was, wasn't going to be able to be rejuvenated and figuring out what to do with that kind of stuff. So I'm really excited about it. And that's the kind of work that I've been really doing um, more recently. In terms of fabric development and or sustainability, are there any other brands out there in or outside of the outdoor industry that you think are kind of ahead of the game or re- doing something really interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like a lot of eagerness in the European market to um, go after a lot of these concepts. And there's brands like Houdini and Picture and Valde and um, others that, you know, even Adidas, they just came out with that new TPU recyclable shoe. And like th- those are new products that are coming out that really are designers are thinking more about, okay, what does, what happens to my product after the the user is done with it. And I think that's really important to, to be addressing. Uh, and I think it's something that the previous generations, we haven't really thought much about. We just kind of like made all this stuff and we're like, this is great. Works really well. And then our generation is coming along and we're kind of like, wait a minute, you guys, like you can't keep doing this forever. So I think that's something that hopefully will be a mark of the next few decades of product creation and design is is really thinking about what happens to your product at the end of life and how to make that product as cleanly as possible in the beginning to kind of curb that whole global warming uh, issue that we've got going on with CO2 emissions. Um, Well, thanks so much, Pasha, for sitting down with us. Um, I know I speak for both Luke and myself when I say this was a really fun conversation. Um, We don't get to geek out on this stuff as much as I think either of us would like to. Uh, so this was this was really fun. Cool. Thanks, you guys. It was really good talking with you, too. Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying these episodes, we'd very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or some feedback in iTunes and also spread the word to your gearhead friends. Thanks, everybody. Be safe out there and we'll talk to you next week.